0: Here in Kid City, you can head to your class. <clears throat> All right. Hey, if you're new to Restore, welcome to the living room. Um, got a few announcements before we, we get into our study here. Uh, if you have a Bible, we're going to be reading a story in Mark chapter 5 today. So if you want to get a head start, that's on page uh, 702 in your Bible. We'll turn there in a few minutes uh, to take a look. Um, if you could, uh, if you want to f- uh, support Restore Church uh, financially, you can text one word "Restore Church" to 77977. Uh, every time we gather together, uh, it's an opportunity to worship, to celebrate, to, to be inspired by the story of Christ, uh, to give uh, of our time, our energy, our resources uh, to kind of keep this going. It uh, gives us a chance to continue meeting as a church. Uh, and also, when you give us uh, financial support, it uh, supports what we're trying to do in other parts of the, of the DMV and Baltimore and the Northeast. We're planting a church in Columbia Heights this September. Joel and Megan Pazmino uh, did a residency with us, and they're going to be launching that church in September. And then Andy and Janet McNeely are planting a church in Baltimore next year. They just moved to Baltimore last week after doing a two-year residency with us. And then also, if you guys could pray uh, we have another couple that's going to be coming uh, to visit with us in July who are thinking about doing a residency with, with us, and they want to plant in Maryland. So um, God just keeps sending us awesome people uh, and, and helps, and we get to a chance to continue this uh, and spread the, you know, continue to spread the love and the truth of Christ. So just keep that in mind when you do give. Uh, and if, if Restore is not your church or if you're not whole, if you're not so sure about this whole God, Church, Jesus thing. Uh, I say this often, but find someone or something that you believe in and support them financially with your time, your prayers, uh, your love. Give until it hurts uh, because the world needs more people who are sacrificing uh, in their generosity. And then also we have an app. You got a program when you came in with a connection card, uh, but we also have an app uh, where you can submit prayer requests, uh, ask questions about Restore. Uh, You can listen to sermons on there. So if you want to download that, you can search We Are Restore on your app store, or We Are Restore eChurch on your Android app store. And then this is the summer of social space. So if you're new here, you're probably like, whoa, there! Are, I'm really close to a lot of people. <laughs> I don't know about this. So uh, we were meeting in a concert venue when we first started meeting as a church, and then we were meeting in an Irish pub, and we just continue to swing this pendulum in a more relationally-centric direction uh, because we see the way Jesus was and the way he operated and Whenever he was sharing uh, whatever he had to give, it was always in the context of relationships, and we just want that chance to continue uh, in, in a very isolated and individualistic culture to capitalize on an opportunity like, oh, I, I have a chance to get to know someone, spend time with someone, and also, this is our venue, so we don't have to be out of here at a certain time, so we get to linger and hang out and have coffee and get to know each other a little bit and chit-chat. Uh, we've got some dates, so a, a perfect opportunity for that is today, uh, we're having our Route to Restore lunch right after our worship gathering. So from like 11.15 to 1.15, we're going to have free lunch. We have free child care. If you want to get connected to other people within Restore, learn a little bit more about our church, how we started, uh, who we are, where we hope to go, uh, it would be a great. And if you just want free food, it's a great opportunity to hang out with us afterwards. That's today. Um, so if you want to come to that last minute, please let me know afterwards, and I'll make sure we have plenty of food. We'll be good to go. So that's today, next Sunday, July 2nd, we have a Sabbath Sunday, which is literally a day of rest. We, we dig those. All right, we like sleeping in. We like resting, because our culture seems to have no clue how to do that. And so it is one way that we get to be rebellious and say, you know what, we're going to rest. So July 2nd, next Sunday, we will not meet here. Uh, we are resting. Uh, so travel, hang out with your friends, your neighbors, your family, sleep in, just do something that's going to give you some life. And then July 16th, uh, we have a, an important uh, opportunity on that Sunday. We have a lunch afterwards or an ice cream social uh, in the afternoon if you, ca- if you need to get the kids home and have a nap. I uh, can't make the lunch. Our kids. There's two teams that make this environment happen on Sunday mornings Kid City team and our environment team. So the environment team does all the setup and tear down and fills up the community trays, and the Kids City team, obviously working with the kids and, and making this a really fun morning for them as well. Uh, if Restore Church is your church, you need to be on one of those teams serving once a month, and we have plenty of people to make that happen. Uh, right now, we've got some people who are serving more than once a month because we need more people who are either uh, have been on the team but haven't engaged in a while, or if you're fairly new and you haven't gotten involved, perfect opportunity to, to do so on July 16th. So Put that on your calendar. We're going to have a free lunch afterwards. We're going to eat. We're going to talk about what it looks like to serve on the environment team and the Kids safety team, specifically in the living room, because this is a completely new environment, set up and tear down, and, and all of that looks completely different. So it's, it's good for, even if you've been involved on the team for a while, we need everybody to, to, to be there. If you're new, great chance to figure out what it looks like. And if you're also, I'll just throw this out there. I've heard this before. If you're nervous about working with kids, um, working with children is not a spiritual gift. It's required. (laughs) It just is, to be a blessing to children. Um, I I am not one. I've coached kindergarten and first grade baseball for five years now. And I I played college baseball. I coached high school baseball. Trust me, K1 baseball is not my thing, (laughs) all right? It's just not. But I've done it for five years because it's a blessing to serve kids and to bring joy to their lives. And we get a chance to do it on Sunday morning. So. That's my, that's as much of a guilt trip as you're going to get this morning. Uh, and then July 30th, really excited about this. We're going to the beach. We are not meeting here. We're going to Ocean City area, Maryland. We're going to the Atlantic Ocean. We're going to have baptisms, and we're going to party, like real party. We know how to party in this church, all right? We're going to have a good time. Picnic at the beach. Uh, three people or maybe more are going to get baptized that day, and we're just going to eat, drink, and be merry and play in the waves and, and just have, and enjoy the, God's beautiful creation. So, that's like a three-hour drive from here. I know some people might be staying the night or go camping the night before, but if you need a ride or a carpool situation, please put that on your connection card so we can just track that and make sure everybody has a chance to be a part of that because we know like, we're kind of going on the road. All right, We need to make sure everybody can get there uh, and, and ha- enjoy that day with us. So this summer, we're also getting really intentional about orienting our lives around Jesus in a, in a communal way. And one experiment is we're using the church calendar and the Book of Common Prayer. So the Book we are a non-denominational church, uh, but we're just exploring these different ways of what it looks like to be really intentional about revolving our lives around him. And in the Book of Common Prayer, there are scriptures associated with each Sunday. And so th- throughout this summer, we're going to pick one of those scriptures on the church calendar, and we're going to use that as our entry point into the story of Christ and to see what he has to say to us. So that's kind of where we're headed um, this summer over the next few months. And today our scripture is Mark chapter 5. So I said it's on page 702, I think. We're going to read this story in uh, Mark chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 21 through 43. A couple different, uh, well, a few different things going on here. We're not going to have time to kind of unpack it all, but there's one big thing. So I'm going to read the whole scripture and then we're, we'll, we'll go back through and, and unpack this. When Jesus had again crossed over by the boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher any more? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and he went in where the child was. He took her by the hand, and he said to her, Talithikum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. So We'll stop there. A lot of stuff going on there. Raises uh, a a dead girl. He heals a sick woman. I've read this story, and and maybe you have, I don't know, dozens of times. um, And something completely new stuck out to me uh, in looking at this story. And it it stuck out because uh, every major player in this story discovered the limits of the Torah. Uh, So if you don't know what the Torah is, the Torah is the law that was laid down by God to Moses and recorded within the first five books of the Old Testament, which is called the Pentateuch. So if you, it, it's uh, Genesis, Exodus, uh, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and Numbers. And I don't know if I said that in the right order, but I got the five books. All right, good enough. Uh, so the Torah, which is also known as the law, was very sacred in Judaism. Uh, I think N.T. Wright does a really great job of summing up the weightiness of the Torah and what it meant to the synagogue leader and to this bleeding woman. He says, in the eyes of its adherents, Torah had come to assume the status of the temple, and with that, to take on divine qualities. In the presence of Torah, one was in the presence of the covenant God. Admit that one has abandoned Torah, and one admits to being a traitor to Israel. Whew. So he communicates the, the heaviness and the sacredness of what uh, the Jews believed about the Torah. So this historical truth, gives context to Jairus and the bleeding woman. See, Jairus was the leader of a synagogue, obviously would have worshipped the Torah, the law, and would have had, um, uh, and we can conclude that the bleeding Jewish woman would have as well. The reason that she was so nervous about touching Jesus' robe and then uh, <coughs> unsure if she should reveal herself is because she broke Levitical law. If you look at Leviticus 15, I'm going to do you a favor. We're not going to read it out loud together because it's uncomfortable. Uh, but if you read Leviticus 15 later, you're going to realize she broke multiple Levitical laws in reaching out and touching Jesus. So both of them know the power of the law. Uh, but when these two, what these two people had come to realize is that there are limits to the law. They had, they had kind of come to the end of the rope there. The law could not heal his daughter. The law could not heal this woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. This reali- now, this realization, as we know now, is filled with enormous amount of risk, but it didn't make it less true. They were willing to risk their lives by seeking Jesus' help. And they had one little, like, ledge to stand on, one little hope to cling to. Because Jesus said in Matthew chapter five seventeen, he kind of announces this throughout his ministry. Uh, this is called the Sermon on the Mount. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So the law, he's saying the law wasn't bad, uh, but the law, what it was, uh, it was just limited. The law was static and unmoving. Uh, It was limited uh, to the word and ritual. And then with Jesus now, the law comes to life. The law is um, personified. Uh, It it is dynamic. It is increasing and it's expanding. It is moving. It's it's come to life in a human, so it no, it no longer revolves around just words and rituals. It's an actual person that we get to follow, and the one method that it is used to spread it is love, and that's ha- that is a powerful shift. So the limited law was fulfilled by the unlimited power of love, and so now instead of a rule to follow, and let's face it, none of us really like following rules, maybe some of us, but not that many. I don't. Uh, we have a person to follow. And 20 centuries later, we need to pause, because you may have heard the story before and, and heard like, you know, the law's been fulfilled, but we need to pause and dwell on the power of this truth. And I was thinking about, um, we lived in Colorado six or seven years ago, eight years ago. Time's starting to fly. And um, I'm not what you would call outdoorsy. Um, I enjoy like, team sports and that kind of a thing. Hiking is not my deal. I love being outside. I just don't want to walk through it or climb up strenuous mountains (laughs) to enjoy it. I would rather just sit on the beach like we're doing July 30th and just be still and enjoy the beauty. Um, So that's kind of the limit of my outdoors experience. Uh, But one of our staff members' husbands was an avid and experienced rock climber, and he asked me if I wanted to go rock climbing. And my brother was in town, and we're both, uh, we, we like risk. So we're like, we have no idea what we're doing, but yeah, we're in because... He knew what he was doing. We'd never been rock climbing, not real rock climbing. We'd been on those cheap walls that you can like, pay money to climb up that are fake, that aren't real rocks. Uh, but we went with him, and we didn't really know, understand what we were in for. Uh, it was an entire day. We spent the first, I don't know, four, five, six hours hiking up to this rock face, <laughs> which is not, I already said, it's not my thing. I'm like, I came to c- climb a rock, all right? I didn't come to hike for five straight hours. So we hike way up all, I mean, straight up uphill. Uh, it's exhausting. And then we get to the rock face and I'm looking up the rock face. And I know it wasn't 10,000 feet, but it felt like that. I'm like, we're climbing that? It was unreal how high, I'm like, how long is it going to take us to climb up that? Took us, I don't remember how long. I think I started to repress the memory, but it took a while. <laughs> um, and it was terrifying. Uh, it was really scary. So Chris, uh, our, our leader, he climbed up first and he placed all the anchors, you know, so you can belay in or what do you call it. I don't know, I did, you know, the, the harness on so if you fall, you don't die. <clears throat> he climbed all the way up, and then my brother climbed up, and then I climbed up. We got up to the very top ledge, and there's a ledge like this wide at the very top that we're all standing on, and it's straight down, thousands of feet. So we'd hiked and then climbed, and I, pe- I, we could see people hiking. They looked like ants, I mean, it was, I, and heights are not my thing. I was terrified. I'm like, this is so freaking scary. And then Chris is like, crap, I need to get over on the other side of you. And I'm like, well, how are you going to do that? There's a, a, a ledge that is as wider, is not even as wide as me that I'm standing on. So what I had to do was I had to lean back over the ravine. I'm, I'm hooked into this anchor that Chris has placed in this <laughs> crack in the rock and I'm already terrified of heights, and I'm leaning all my weight back, hanging thousands of feet over the ground, and he crawls underneath me on this ledge. And it was maybe the scariest, one of the scarier moments of my life um, to think, man, I hope that anchor stays in there. Because I weigh like 220, and I'm like, That's, that little anchor's holding <laughs> all my weight. Um, that, that my life is literally in this little uh, thing that Chris placed. And I thought, thinking back on that now, would I have preferred to read some directions on how to rock climb and how to place anchors and do it myself? Or would I rather follow someone who knows what they're doing, has seen it and experienced it, and knows it and by heart? I would rather put my life in his hands than my own hands in that moment. And that's, that kind of relates back to like Jairus <clears throat> and the bleeding woman. They'd gotten to a point of where the law wasn't enough to follow the rules and the rituals and, and, and all of that. It just left them wanting. They knew it had limits. Um, I want to follow a person. I want someone to lead me. And I know that many people, uh, I mean, we live in the age and in the culture of hyper-individualism, privilege, education. Uh, humanist kind of nature of like, I, I'm the, you know, the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. I want to do what I want. Relative truth reigns supreme. We're in this rampant age of swinging from enlightenment and modernism to postmodernism and all of that's going on. And I can totally relate to that instinct. I don't want people to tell me what to do. I want to do things my way. But at some point, that has limits. We're going to reach that maybe it's when you're hanging out over a rock face with someone else's, you know, your life is in someone else's hands. Or maybe your daughter is dying. Or maybe you're going through a divorce. Or maybe you're like the woman, and you're, and you're bleeding, or you're, you're, you're sick, and you need healing, and you've tried everything, whether it's mental or physical. That is, <coughs> we, we're going to come to this point uh, where culture seems to reject this overarching nar- meta narrative that we need something bigger but at some point that logic breaks down all right it's just, just logic it's just philosophy. if we just play that trail out at some point that trail ends and it's not enough um, and we need someone to follow. I was reading uh, this book the other night uh, you've probably maybe you've heard of Ellie Wiesel uh, his book called Night uh, uh, he, was, he just recently passed away passed away last year um, he grew up in Transylvania uh, his family w- uh, were um, devout Jews uh, in the midst of the Holocaust. And this is his book. It's just a you know, 120 pages or so, but this is his memoir of his time um, in, the get in the Jewish ghetto uh, when the Third Reich was expanding through Europe. Uh, and then most of it's about how they pulled him out of the ghetto and it's about his journey through these different Nazi concentration camps. And it is the, maybe the most horrific uh, sobering book I've ever read. I, st- I picked it up on Friday. It'll ruin your Friday night. I, I picked it up on Friday night, and it, I was like, wow, this is awful. And I couldn't put it down. Uh, I read the whole book on Friday night and uh, <clears throat> just haunted by it. But it reminded me, his story reminded me of what we're talking, of what the story of Jairus and his daughter and the, and the bleeding woman. Um, basically, um, you know, he spoke, um, okay, so his story began, the very beginning of the book, he talks about the death of his father. His father died in the concentration camp just a few months before the war ended, and they'd been in the concentration camp for years. Uh, so his father almost made it all the way through, but he talks about this being the most haunting, horrific moment of his life, filled with regret, and then he, can, and then he goes back to the beginning and tells the whole story, and then the story ends with him um, talking again about his father's death and there was something in there, uh, there. He spoke of an instinct that he witnessed, and then he personally experienced, and it reminded me of what we're talking about today. And so I'm going to read a, just a couple of excerpts uh, from his story. And the the excerpt we're reading from is near the end of the war. They've been in the concentration camp for a couple of years. Um, you know, they're starving, they're thirsty. It's in the middle of winter. Uh, the Allied troops uh, have basically taken over the camp that they were in. They're fleeing, and the SS troops are making them march. Uh, it's basically this death march <coughs> through the the fields of, uh, I think it was in Germany, uh, in these frigid conditions, horrible conditions. Then they load them, they pack them into these train cars, and they keep going. Uh, he said uh, his his car had a hundred people in it, uh, and when they got to the next camp, there was only twelve people alive. So <coughs> it was, you know, just a horrific journey. And so we kind of pick up. I'm just going to read a few excerpts. Um, of what he saw and experienced. One day when he had come to a stop, a worker took a piece of bread out of his bag and he threw it into a wagon. There was a stampede. Dozens of starving men fought desperately over a few crumbs. The worker watched the spectacle with great interest. In the wagon where the bread had landed, a battle had ensued. Men were hurling themselves against each other, trampling, tearing at, and mauling each other. Beasts of prey unleashed, animal hate in their eyes. An extraordinary vitality possessed them, sharpening their teeth and nails. A crowd of workmen and curious passerbys had, had formed all along the train. They had undoubtedly never seen a train with this kind of cargo. Soon, pieces of bread were falling into the wagon from all sides, and the spectators observed these emaciated creatures ready to kill for a crust of bread. A piece fell into our wagon. I decided not to move. Anyway, I knew that I would not be strong enough to fight off dozens of violent men. I saw that not far from me an old man dragging himself on all fours. He had just detached himself from the struggling mob. He was holding one hand to his heart. At first, I thought he had received a blow to his chest, and then I understood he was hiding a piece of bread under his shirt. With lightning speed, he pulled it out and he put it into his mouth. His eyes lit up. A smile like a grimace illuminated his ashen face and was immediately extinguished. A shadow had laid down beside him, and this shadow threw itself over him. Stunned by the blows, the old man was crying. Mare, my little mare, don't you recognize me? You're killing your father. I have bread for you too, for you too. He collapsed, but his fist was still clutching a small crust. He wanted to raise it to his mouth, but the other threw himself on him. The old man mumbled something, groaned, and died. Nobody cared. His son searched him, took the crust of bread, and began to devour it. He didn't get far. Two men had been watching, and they jumped him. Others joined in, and when they withdrew, there were two dead bodies next to me—the father and the son. I was sixteen. So you witnessed this, uh, and now I'm gonna, and I apologize. It's extremely sobering. Um, but I want to read um, the, the moment uh, of his father's death. All around me there was silence now, broken only by moaning. In front of the block, the SS were giving orders. An officer passed between the bunks. My father was pleading, My son, water, I'm burning up, my insides. Silence over there, barked the officer. Eliezer continued, thy father. Water! The officer came closer and shouted to him to be silent. But my father did not hear. He continued to call me, the officer wielded his club and dealt him a violent blow to the head i didn 't move, I was afraid my body was afraid of another blow this time to my head. The f- my father groaned once more. I heard Eliezer. I could not see that he was still bre- I could see that he was still breathing in gasps i didn't move when I came down from my bunk after roll call. I could see his lips trembling. he was murmuring something. <clears throat> I remained more than an hour leaning over him, looking at him, etching his bloody, broken face into my mind. Then I had to go to sleep. I climbed into my bunk above my father, who was still alive. The date was January 28, 1945. I woke up at dawn on January 29th, and on my father's cot there lay another sick person. They must have taken my father away before daybreak and taken him to the crematorium. Perhaps he was still breathing. No prayers were said over his tomb, no candle lit in his memory. His last word had been my name. He called out to me, and I had not answered. I did not weep, and it pained me that I could not weep, but I was out of tears. And deep inside me, if I could have searched the recesses of my feeble conscience, I might have found something like, free at last. He felt free when his father died. And he spoke of this. uh, He said, I shall never... (coughs) forgive myself nor shall I ever forgive the world for having pushed me against the wall for having turned me into a stranger for having awakened in me the basest most primitive instincts his last word had been my name a summons and I had not responded so jerison the bleeding woman discovered the limits of the law and Ellie Wiesel discovered the limits of human love Um, I'm not standing in judgment of him. On the contrary, I'm amazed by him and his story. But he admitted in his book that human love has limits. He witnessed it, and then he experienced it himself. And it's one of his greatest regrets that he speaks of in his book. So for those of us who gravitate to religion and order and rules, we need to realize there are limits to the law. And for those of us who aren't religious, who are humanist in nature or individualistic, we need to realize there are limits to human love. All right? there, there are limits to both. And we need to ignore the instinct of making our own rules and forming our own truth. We need divine love. We need someone to follow. And we, what we have is a God who offers his love to us, and we have a chance to receive it and then share it with others by following in his footsteps. And it's so vitally important that our understanding and practice of this divine love continues to increase. This is not an on-off switch. Like once you decide to follow Christ, it's not like you have all of this awareness, all of this love, and you're just ready to roll. It is a journey. All right? Remember, we follow, we follow a Jewish man, a Jewish God, and in, in, Jew, in, in Judaism, truth is unfolding. All right? it, it is a journey towards that. And so our realization of this love is a lifelong journey. Um, I mean, our country's filled with, uh, and I don't know what the, the, the numbers are, but it's, there are people like this, and I don't know if it's the majority or the minority, but it's, we have a lot of religious fundamentalists, and we, al- we have a lot of politically active people who have what I would call, both of them, an over-realized eschatology of the political process. So eschatology is a study of the end times, of like the ultimate destiny of humankind, and I noticed that our culture... Uh, has a tendency to worship at the altar of rules and policy and law, that if we can just get the right ones in place and get enough people following them, that destiny for humankind would progress and would be better, Um, whether it's the ordination, creation, or following of those. But they're sorely mistaken, because laws and rules, they assist in the order, but they are limited. Love can reach much farther, much deeper. We don't participate, as Christians, we don't participate in the making of laws and rules. We will use them to our advantage, like Paul, like Claim, all right, the, the legal clinic that serves people here out of the living room in Silver Spring. Uh, but our kingdom operates with one law, love. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus said the, the law is now. So it's love God, love others, love yourself. That's it. That's what we operate by. That's what we lead with. And I can't help but wonder how history might be different if someone in Hitler's circle had took the risk of loving him. I think about that a lot. Laws and rules didn't extinguish evil. Racism is still alive and well. Violence and murder. The only antidote to that is love. And it's risky. It's Jairus breaking the Torah to seek Jesus's help. It's the bleeding woman risking her life to touch his cloak. That's the kind of risk that is involved when we love like Jesus did. It, it might involve us losing our lives. That's the type of love that Jesus had for all of humanity. Have you ever been in that moment where, um, I don't know, maybe you're having a conversation with someone and you have no idea what to say or do? I, I, I struggle with that moment, right? like, internally, I'm like, what do I say here, what question do I ask, or what comment, um, it could be just like a happening, like you're just getting to know someone, or maybe it's someone you know who's sharing something deeply intimate and personal, either way, you're like, I don't know how to respond to this, or what to, to say in this moment, how to respond, um, what I would contend is that the best thing we can do is figure out, how do I inject love in this moment, what does that look like, it's risky, because you might say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, but it's leading with love that will change uh, not only someone's life, your life, and, but other people's, uh, you know, the world in general. Learning how to receive Christ's love and share that type of otherworldly love, like I said, is a long journey. Christ's love working uh, doesn't end with the raising of Jairus' daughter or the healing of the bleeding woman. The healing continues. So where does God want to heal you? You have to personalize this and think, I'm not done with him healing me, him reaching into the deepest parts of me and restoring me or piecing me back together. Have you experienced that um, incredibly intimate, embarrassing, you know, where where God might reach into some areas of shame or or, or scar tissue that you're like, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to let him in there. I don't want to feel that. But where does God want to breathe life back into you? It starts there. What has God brought? Now, you, now you translate that, and then you s- you shift it to, uh, who has God brought into my life that needs to experience divine love? All right. People don't need any more law. They don't need more rules to follow. They don't. They don't need more human love. They need divine love. They need to experience that the miraculous, unconditional, nonstop. Uh, divine love. <clears throat> and this is where our understanding of this story gets critical, where the rubber hits the road. Because if you're a Christian, you're a missionary. It's not one or the other. It's not like, oh, I've been a Christian, but someone else is a missionary. And it's like, nope, they go, they're together. You're a Christian, you're a missionary. God has sent you into your workplace, your neighborhood, your friendships, your family, uh, to give this divine love. And the deeper you allow Christ into your life, the more breath he breathes into you, the more healing that you experience the more willing you're going to be in sharing with other people, the more aware you're going to be. All right, we believe in this, uh, you know, like in this, (coughs) I guess you could call it theology, of that every single second of the day is divine, is a moment where the Holy Spirit is hanging out and he's waiting to, to move. And we have that, you know, that access, that constant access. God is not compartmentalized to when you're hanging out with other Christians or just on a Sunday morning. He is moving all the time and in every context, and he's waiting for our awareness and our discernment to join in that effort. And the more we let him in deeper in us, the more aware we're going to become of these other moments of sharing him. Um, <clears throat> and as we learned from Jairus and the bleeding woman, following Jesus is risky. The more you let him in, the more risk you're willing to take. It's, it is, uh, what's that called? I don't know. They, they go together. All right. <clears throat> the less risky it will feel to share love with other people. So let's pray.